0: This is Space Nuts, where we talk about astronomy and space science every week. And thanks for joining us once again. Coming up, we've got plenty to talk about, as well as a special guest interviewer who we'll tell you more about shortly on this edition of Space Nuts. But we'll also be looking at the planet Neptune because they've made a very interesting discovery. Its temperature has dramatically changed. Uh, in certain parts of the planet, Um, and it's an unusual planet. We don't get to talk about much, so we'll focus on that. We'll be hearing from Serb in Italy who wants to know if uh, he will ever see the results of a mission to another star in his lifetime. I'm just doing the math, Serb could be a problem and sandy from melbourne uh wants to talk about the uh recent interstellar meteor and whether or not we can go and pick up bits of it that's all coming up on this edition of space nuts
1: 15 seconds guidance is internal 10 9 ignition sequence start space
0: nuts 5 4 3 2 1 2 3 4 5 5 4 3 2 1 space nuts astronauts report it feels good so good of you to join us as we begin our trek to episode 400, (laughs) which uh, could take a little while, a couple of years maybe. (laughs) Uh, Just bear with us. It'll happen, we hope. Uh, Andrew Dunkley here, of course, and joining me as always is the good professor himself, astronomer at large, Fred Watson. Hello, Fred. Hello, Andrew. How are you doing today? I am, well, I wish I could say I'm fine, but um, my son has uh, has been in touch to say he's got COVID. Right. After spending the weekend here. Oh, there you go. Yeah, so um, that's, uh, yeah, well, I'll just be keeping an eye on myself Uh, once again. Another bullet that I'm hopefully dodging. Um, But uh, other than that, yeah, had a great Easter with the family and we we sort of um, partied on till 7 p.m. It, it was big. <laughs> <laughs> My kind of party these yes, days. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yes. Now, yeah. Fred, uh, you've brought along a special guest. Would you well, like to do a formal <laughs> introduction, please?
2: I, I, I think he came along of his own volition, <laughs> but we certainly invited him. Uh, and uh, ladies and gentlemen in our widespread audience, I'd like to introduce uh, Mr David Astle, who is the presenter of ABC Evenings in Melbourne and has had a long and distinguished career in the Australian Broadcasting Commission. Uh, Over to you, David. How are you doing?
0: Very
1: well. Thanks, Fred. G'day, uh, Anthony. Uh, uh, Andrew, sorry. That's a great start. That's okay.
0: No, uh, no, it's all right because um, I I got called David for a long time and people still do it. So that's okay. I, you know, you can call me anything you well, like. I'll, I'll
1: an anagram it. of wander, and my mind obviously wandered there in the last minute. Uh, Actually, <laughs> can on. I? I'm going to ask you this because I've got some questions I'd like to ask both of you. Having heard the show over the years, and congratulations entering the fourth century—that's very exciting. <laughs> uh, but with a film critic and a film lover, they will be hypnotized by the living screen when the film is being projected onto that that screen. And the same applies to the night sky. That's when the action happens. So my question, I'll start with you, Fred, is does the day sky hold any fascination for you?
2: Fantastic question, David. Uh, And the answer is yes, uh, on many different levels. Um, I mean, you know, the only difference between the day sky and the night sky is that the sun lights up the atmosphere during the day and renders it brighter than the celestial objects that are revealed uh, when the sun dips below the horizon and, and the, the sky goes dark. So that everything's still there. And there are some objects that you can... Under certain circumstances, see uh, in a daytime sky. The most notable is the planet Venus at certain times in its uh, in its uh, uh, you know its celestial dance around the sun. Uh, th- there are times which we call uh, Venus' greatest brilliance. That's the, the the technical name of it. And and at that time, Venus is brighter than the daytime sky. Uh, so you can actually see it with the unaided eye. I find it harder to find these days than I used to, uh, but with a pair of binoculars, I can usually see it. Although. There's always a warning against uh, with binoculars or telescopes during the day. Never point them at the sun uh, because uh, when you look through them you will blind yourself. The other thing though about the daytime sky um, is that um of course what's in the atmosphere is the weather and we astronomers tend also to be kind of amateur meteorologists, uh, weather watchers, because you're interested to know what the sky is going to do during the night. Um, If you have weather, anything like the weather we've had in Sydney for the last two months, you just give up hope altogether. Um, But there are are certain times of the day as well uh, when the The light itself changes. I I, I remember having grown up in the Northern Hemisphere, uh, you know, in the the UK, where the sun is never overhead. Um, Here, uh, in our latitudes, it's almost overhead in midsummer. And that puts a completely different complexion on the landscape. It's a really lovely thing that always uh, gives me a bit of a lift. Um, But the other thing is when you get twilight phenomena, when the sun is going down, all kinds of things happen to the sky. Um, uh, this thing called the belt of Venus rises, which is the edge of the Earth's shadow cast on the atmosphere. Uh, you sometimes get these crepuscular rays, which are shafts of light that are that, that, that are shining through the sky. So in some ways, the daytime sky is as exciting as the nighttime sky. And one final caveat. I bet you wish I hadn't asked That's me awesome, this day. <laughs> one final thing. Of course, for radio astronomers... The daytime sky is exactly the same as the nighttime sky because they they observe all, all, all you know twenty four hours at um, uh, at a time. They not at a time necessarily, but they can observe throughout uh, twenty four hours because the, the the sky is not bright in the radio spectrum. All right, I'll shut up. now.
1: <laughs> Andrew, can I? Would you care to um, answer that question? Because I have another one that I that um, I've tailored particularly for you. But um, how about you and the day sky? Is that do you look up with a little bit more? Um, intrigue and and erudition, having um, rubbed shoulders with Fred for so long?
0: He certainly inspired me, and uh, he does sort of make me think more about what's going on out there, and I I do tend to look during the day uh, as well as the night, and sometimes I get lucky. I got a, a wonderful daytime photo of the moon not so long ago, and so you've got this bright white highly detailed cratered thing that floats around uh, our planet uh, on a vivid blue background. So I was very proud of that. But I think one of the, the, the quirkier things that, that's happened because Fred and I were talking is um, I, I was whinging about the pollen um, the spring before last and uh, it, it prompted him to talk about these, um, these uh, phenomena called pollen coronas where the the sunlight is broken up by the pollen in the air and creates these beautiful colourful halos, which you can't see with the naked eye because of the brightness of the sun. But if you are at the right time of day with the right amount of pollen in the air, you could point a camera at it and take a photo and get a pollen corona photo and i I accepted the challenge and I actually managed it that very afternoon yeah. after we recorded Space Nuts. <laughs> Got this beautiful image of all these different colours, so, you know, in a circle around the, uh, the the halo of the of the sun. Uh, and, you know, I never knew there was such a thing until he mentioned it and I had a photo of it that afternoon. Amazing. So, yeah, I I find it very intriguing. You just never know what's up there. All right. For,
1: for you, Andrew, I know that um, Fred has the distinction of a of, uh, an asteroid named after him, uh, 5691, which I think that might be Cottesloe Beach. I'm not sure exactly where that postcode leads you. But for you, Andrew, <laughs> if you had your wish, a realistic wish, what do you uh, what would you hope that um, would be named after you up there in the galaxies?
0: Oh, my gosh. <laughs> um <laughs> Oh gosh! You know what? The the crater that Alan <laughs> Shepard hit the golf ball in on the moon. <laughs> Name that one after me. Oh, that's yeah. a great one.
1: I I I,
2: I think um, there must be a golf club nebula somewhere <laughs> that you, you could have. You no, know, the, you know, the, the, dunkly... the
1: five irons uh, don't float, don't you? <laughs> don't float. That's yeah, right. They don't.
2: <laughs> All right.
1: You've uh, been reading uh, my books. Yeah. I'll uh, I'll turn this back to you, Fred. Um, the one. We just saw recently here in Australia um, a Broken Hill amateur astronomer called Trevor Barry, who was awarded um, the very distinguished uh, Berenice and Arthur Page Medal for amateur astronomy, uh, along with uh, another organization. What struck me, because I had the pleasure of of, um, interviewing Trevor on air earlier this week. Fantastic. And the way that he, I mean, not only was he so exuberant, (laughs) but he was talking about how his calculations on Saturn's atmosphere have added intelligence um, to the, the NASA and Cassini databases. And what hit me almost for the first time was that space is really a wonderful playground for mathematicians I, I know as a person of words, I am struck with awe by the majesty of the spheres, and I can write my poems and try and describe it, um, you know, in, in lyrical language. But the reason I'm not as deeply embedded in the um, the glory of space, I do believe could well do with my mathematics runs short of the genius of someone like Trevor Barry and obviously someone like you, Fred. Do, do you think that it is more seductive to somewhat of a mathematical bent? What a great question, David. And um, I'm
2: glad you painted a little picture of yourself in there as well, because we're remiss in not having asked you to to tell us about, you know, what you've been up to and what excites you. We might do that in a minute or two. But um, you, that's a really perceptive remark that um, maybe uh, if you are, if you have a mathematical mind, you Tend to lean towards the idea of a universe out there that that you can think of in three dimensions. That's the critical thing, because of course the the night sky is a two dimensional tapestry, um, which took ancient people a long, long time to work out to figure out what was going on. Um, Whereas when you're studying the universe whether you're an amateur astronomer or a professional or just an, an interested bystander uh, you, you do need to be able to visualize things in three dimensions and maybe that demands a bit of mathematical prowess um I, the, 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 there is another connection here and that's um that musicians apparently are similarly endowed with mathematical abilities the two often go together and um Certainly, I know many of astronomers who are quite proficient musicians. Um, I'm not including myself in <laughs> that, but I have worked with one of Australia's greatest living composers who was here a couple of nights ago. Uh, I wrote the libretto for his fourth symphony, which was a choral work, which actually won an APRA yeah. award, believe it or not. How does
1: an astronomer awesome. win a Brian Sorry, Cox, of course, a musician as well, and there's Brian. Community. That's right,
2: yeah, mus- musical background. Yeah, it's absolutely right. Um, and just finally, I'm really glad you mentioned Trevor. Um, I know Trevor very well. Um, I've been an admirer of his work since I met him, first met him in 2000. Um, and yes, exactly what you say. He has his his amateur astronomy has dovetailed perfectly, particularly in the days when the Cassini mission was in full flight, and there were. They they needed the planet to be monitored because the Cassini telescopes couldn't point to everything at once. And there was Trevor uh, in Broken Hill sending them, you know, the news on the latest storms on Saturn, all the rest of it. A very well-deserved winner of the
1: Remarkable uh, man. And and his own, you know, DIY uh, observatory. What a remarkable, um, you know.
2: And and so humble as well, Um, you know, a a former miner. A fabulous story. Yeah, it's a great story.
1: I guess for you, uh, Andrew, the, um were you? Did you have a mathematical uh, bent growing up at school, doing your, you know, your, your HSC? Uh,
0: I was a dropout. I, <laughs> I dropped out of school halfway through uh, year You're eleven. You trying to tell me you were um, a space cadet? No, I, uh, I, I like space many, star. like many of my joys and interests in life, they came late. I didn't know anything about what I wanted to do with my life through school. And even in my early adulthood, I, I just took whatever job was available. I didn't really care. Radio was always my first love. I'd been a radio fanatic since I could pick up a transistor radio and listen to it in bed. But um, um, I, I, I I, think my interest in astronomy has always sort of been in, in the back of my mind. I used to uh, go to my grandparents' place over in Lawn in Maitland and just lie on the um, the cement and on, a, on a summer night and just lie back and look up at the stars and try and figure what was going on out there and count the satellites as they sque- screamed past. So I think it's always been a fascination for me and it was probably spawned by the Apollo missions. And, you know, the chance to, to talk to um, Fred on a regular yep. basis about these things is, um, was just a fantastic opportunity, and I'm glad he said yes. So, yeah, I think I've <laughs> so I've much. always been intrigued, and and I, there's so much I want to learn, and and so so much so I bought myself a telescope, so I'm I'm learning how to use that and where to point it and when not to point it, and <laughs> uh, you know it's, it's some of the things that Fred has taught me I've been able to use in my science fiction novels. So there's there's a few elements to these books that I've written that I couldn't have even considered because I wouldn't have known they existed in, in had I never spoken to Fred about astronomy so and, and one of the big twists in one of the books is based on something Fred told me so um, which I won't no, reveal as as now someone's prob- you know there's two or, <laughs> two or three people who haven't read it <laughs> but uh, yeah I, I, but mathematically speaking no, I'm a, I'm a dud. I think that's what inspired me to leave school was the last mathematics test I ever sat (laughs) because I'll never do it again. (laughs) Um,
1: Can I stay with you, Andrew? And I want to use the platform of science fiction because that's another point of entry for me as as more of a word person than a numbers person. Uh, You know, I've read my share of science fiction. I enjoy the genre um, and I've written about... um, all the language that's come out of science fiction. There's a there's a wonderful website that I can recommend to listeners of Space Nuts called the um, sfdictionary.com that's been put together. It's an historical dictionary of science fiction terms. Um, the It's been compiled by, uh, just getting the gentleman's name here, the editor-at-large of the Oxford English Dictionary, uh, Jesse, um, Jesse Sh- uh, Shieldlower. I'd like to ask you, though, Andrew, I know that um, having written your sci-fi novels and having spoken um, at length and learnt so much through Fred, has there been a, a real standout writer or who's, who's been more than prescient in terms of how space exploration or our ken of space um, have evolved, you know, to its um, modern level? What's the writer in particular... Who's um, shone for you in that regard?
0: I would have to say Kim Stanley Robinson. He's written science fiction. Uh, He's consulted on um, TV shows about how certain things could be done uh, in terms of uh, our exploration of space. I loved his series on Mars. He wrote a a trilogy on Mars Red Mars, Green Mars, Blue Mars, uh, which was. More or less about um, humans settling on Mars and doing what Fred hopes will never happen, and <laughs> and terraforming it and turning it into a livable planet. Uh, and and some of his theories were, you know, a lot of people agree that his concepts and his capacity to to develop the ideas are. In, to a certain degree, workable. I mean, we know realistically Mars is just too small to hold an atmosphere and it will never be, um, you, you could never do what people envisage would be what they want to do to that planet. But um, he, he certainly come up with some fabulous ideas and, and written them into some great stories. He, he writes uh, at a complexity level that um, I I Sometimes struggle with, but it 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 certainly does. um, It certainly opens your mind and makes you wonder about what we we are going to achieve as as humans when we start getting out there amongst the stars. Because it will happen. It will happen. Fred, for
1: you,
2: Um, I did go back to. um, you know, to to the to the great names of uh, science fiction. I used to read a lot of science fiction. I gave up on it because <laughs> I kept thinking, yeah, you can't do that. You can't. No, that's, that's impossible. You can't possibly." Do that. <laughs> but um, you know, Arthur C. Clarke, with his particularly with things like the idea of um, uh, of uh, geostationary satellites, that's an extraordinary vision uh to to for for somebody who was actually then a radio engineer but clearly destined for a great career in um you know in in, in science fiction writing but <clears throat> the idea of um of uh, uh, of geostationary satellites i've got his 19 i think it was 1947 i've got his paper on it it was in wireless world uh and when you read it, it what he says is exactly what happened he even calculated um what will be the size of the the dish that you'd need on the side of your house to pick up these right. signals, and it's exactly what what they are. You know these little parabolic dishes that you see yeah. everywhere. That you calculated the size of them. That was in 1947. The like a user's manual.
1: Yeah, yeah, almost yeah. like that. That's right. Yeah. Mm. Um, all right. Here's, here, this is my curveball one. Um, if I said that uh, I'm a Scorpio and therefore I'm I'm given to <laughs> sardonic humor. Um, I can be treacherous at times. Are you thinking that I'm completely <laughs> daft? The whole the whole notion <laughs> of astrology up against astronomy, um, is it complete bunkum in your um, scholarly mind or do you think that there's a grain of truth in this whole idea of the galaxies, the alignment of constellations and our own behaviour as human beings?
0: Can I jump in with a really quick, yeah, feel free to that. Please just
1: throw bricks at me, but I just wanted to ask it's the first opportunity yeah, to no, ask you this, Fred. But what, what have you got,
0: Andrew? It It's right up there with crystals and oils.
1: <laughs> All right. I am suspecting. <laughs> There's nothing the
0: wrong with crystals and oils. Not-
2: <laughs> well, look, um you, of course, um 400 years ago, astronomy and astrology were the same thing. Uh and and um uh, in fact um I did a bit of work on this recently the the two names go back I can't remember 12th or 13th centuries in the English language and the, the really interesting thing about them is their origin David because um, astrology astrology basically is asked astron and logos so that means words about yeah. the stars uh, astronomy is astron and num- um, well nomos which is numbering the stars and that Kind of tells you um, uh, very nicely what the what the backgrounds are historically. Um, I've a, I've had a lot to do with astrologers. I used to give an annual talk uh, when I lived in the UK to the Scottish Astrological Society. Um, and my colleagues thought it was bonkers. My colleagues in the observatory <laughs> thought I'd lost my head. <laughs> but um, I, I, I went. They, they, they liked hearing about what's happening in the real solar system <laughs> rather than in their solar system. And yes, while the premise on which astrology is built um, is one that really doesn't hold water, and you know when you do all the statistical tests, uh, astrological predictions come out the same as pure guesses. What I admired was the the, the diligence uh, that these people. Um, used to make their calculations. There was a huge amount. Of, this is all done by hand in those days. Nowadays, it's all done by computers. But they calculated ephemerides and all sorts of really extraordinary things that was in its own way admirable. And I thought, well, if you take, you know, you've got a basic premise that you take that's that's faulty, but then you run with it, there's something to be admired in that. Where I do get upset is when people make lots of money out of, um, you know pulling the wool over people's eyes yeah. and, and making astrological predictions that really shouldn't you know it it's false advertising in a way it is uh, so that's that's the thing that really um, I'm not keen
1: all right well this is my my last question and it's um it's heroes and i'd like to you're allowed to choose two two um okay two heroes of astronomy one uh from the prior to 1900 so all all bets are open there from Galileo to Copernicus or wherever you may choose and then someone from the 20th century onwards so you choose one from each um, period uh, <laughs> I'm gonna put I'm gonna put the acid on you Andrew straight away so you're not going to be copying Fred's uh, notebook <laughs> who would they be for you
0: Oh gosh it's um, not an easy question to answer. Um, I watched that BBC series many years ago called the planets and I uh, I, I just found it's so intriguing and they dropped so many names in that but the one that stuck in my mind was William Herschel I um, I, I, I for some reason uh, found the work he did to be um, just stunning and he pioneered so many things. Um, I think would I be right in saying it was the first large telescope was 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 Herschel, and he identified thousands of objects in the night sky. So you know, a real pioneer, and he, he set a benchmark that just people grow and grow and grow to. And um, I, I think he, uh, I, I think he was a standout when it when it came to um, not only discovery but development of the tools we needed to make discoveries. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Yeah. Um, it did. Yeah, absolutely. In the 20th century, oh, I'm going to sound like a real, you know, um a real suck up here, but it's it's Fred Watson. Well, <laughs> <laughs> oh, was a answer as well. <laughs> yeah. I, I yeah, well I know that oh, <laughs> uh, mainly because I've been associated with him for so long, and I've learned so much. And like the the space nuts audience, who constantly say how. Easy he is to listen to, and how he can explain such complex complex things in language, uh, in a language that is so understandable, and 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 you know nut it all out for people so that they can walk away and go, I really understood that. Um, I think that's a, a quality that Fred has that um, is is not easy for a lot of people, and he does it so brilliantly. And he, he he's always available. He's always willing to talk. Um, and 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 he's a radio presenter's dream because you ask him a question, you can go and make a cup of coffee and feed the cat and come back and just catch the end of the, the answer. You know, it's um uh, as you know in radio, the last thing you want are people to go um, in answer to a question. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so for me, it's Fred, and I think the Space Nuts audience would have to agree with me because uh, he's just so so very good to work with and and so very easy to listen to and the and i did say this last week in episode 300 but i'll say it again for you david people in all the time i've spoken to fred on the radio and on the podcast um that have cornered me have said is fred really as nice as he sounds (laughs) and the answer is wholeheartedly yes (laughs) all
1: right so fred Uh, gosh um you can't pick yourself and you can't pick herschel but you, who would that be? <laughs> who, would, who would those uh, the 2 um, pinups for you?
2: Yeah, there's so many to choose from, David. That's why That's right. So so let me just take t- two random ones. The ancient one, I'd choose the great Danish astronomer Tycho Brahe, who um, was sort of he's basically, sing, not single-handedly, but uh, masterminded – probably what was the first scientific institution. They built an observatory on the island of Vane, which is in the Eurisont between modern-day Denmark and Sweden. Um, And uh, he uh, mustered what resources he had to make the finest observations of positions of objects in the night sky before the invention of the telescope. It was on the eve of the invention of the telescope. He lived in the second half of the uh, 17th century Um, I I like him, too, because we share the same birthday, only 398 years apart. Uh, He was born in 1546. Um, uh, Sorry, I said 17th century. I meant the 16th century. Uh, He was born in 1546. Um, Of course, the calendar changed in the UK in 1752, so it's not exactly 398 (laughs) years apart, but his birthday is the same same as mine. And the other thing... um, you know, well, he was a flawed character because he was probably a bit of a tyrant with the, you know, the the, the farmers and the, the the people of the island who he just he grabbed him to to do all his his work for them, building water mills to make paper so he could publish his results, things of like that sort, extraordinary <laughs> stuff. Um, but but he also his his other fame claim to fame is. He he was an astrologer as well as an astronomer, so that was what you did in the late 16th century. Uh, and he made a prediction uh, as a result of a solar eclipse, uh, which was the death of Suleiman the Magnificent in, of the Ottoman Empire. He predicted that this guy would die. It turned out that he died six weeks before, so it was you know a bit after the event, and everybody ridiculed him, in particular one of his cousins, with whom he eventually had a duel, uh, which Tycho lost because... Um, the cousin Mandrup Parsberg was his name. was great with a with a sword, and and uh, basically took off took his nose uh, at a dinner party. It must have been lovely having all <laughs> that going on in a dinner party. Your nose has just landed in my soup. <laughs> um, you know. Anyway, um, but but what he did was then he he basically invented pros- prosthetic noses. He he had them. Um, uh, he had two sorts. He had. One's made of copper for weekdays, and one's made of an alloy of gold and silver for weekends, for, for Sundays. Uh, so, an extraordinary person. What a life. So, you know, all this. Yeah. <laughs> and for a 20th century astronomer, um, somebody uh, of whom you've never heard, um, if I can do what? that, because um, this this is a person, I'm, I'm going to name him Ben Gascoigne. Uh, a New Zealand-born Australian astronomer. He died in 2010. I think he was born in 1915. He was 95 when he passed away. Had a long and highly productive life in astronomy. It just happens that I'm writing his biography as a memoir for the Australian Academy uh, of Science at the moment, and I'm, I'm overdue with it. So, if anybody's listening, <laughs> it's important <laughs> in that it is in progress. I am writing it. Uh, so, so I've got a couple of pictures. I'm going to hold. That's that's Ben uh, immediately after the Second World War with a transit telescope. Um, a young, bright astronomer, incredibly gifted uh, young man. With um, I've read some of his papers. They're quite extraordinary. This is him. Uh, Near the end of his life, well into his nineties, but it was just a delight. That picture of that great smile on his face—that yeah. was bent throughout, so optimistic, talented, gifted. Um, he in in uh, 1980, and I, I'd only known him a couple of years then. He basically retired from astronomy, although it was still he was honestly Australia's grand old man, father figure of astronomy. But he said he retired, and he did that because his wife uh, was one of Canberra's uh, best-known artists, uh, Rosalie Gascoigne, very, very famous artist. And Ben sort of stopped his career in order to be able to support her. She died in the 1990s, sadly. But um, really a remarkable story and somebody who I hold in great esteem and I'm, you know, honoured to have known him personally. He he seemed to quite like me, actually, so that was
0: (laughs) really nice. (laughs) Gee, that's strange, Fred. (laughs)
1: <laughs> well, thank, anyway. thank you for indulging me with sure. those questions, uh, illustrious answers. I wouldn't expect anything less. Um, it's, <laughs> it's a thrill to actually be part of this uh, podcast. Um, and it's it's also, I agree with you, Andrew, the, the joy of, of having Fred on on the airwaves is you, you throw what seems a, uh, the most impossible or opaque question, asking him about, uh, does the sun have seasons? And you're thinking, what could he possibly say? But suddenly what comes back yep. is clarity, <laughs> um, is is uh, enthusiasm, and you you listen and you learn and you also really enjoy the engagement. So it's that, um, I, as they say in the industry, it's the double thread of the knowledge and the clarity to communicate. And I'm not sure, Fred, yeah. if that's due to your background as a musician or as a comedian. Which is the one that is the most yeah, yeah. the most um, uh, beneficial for a communicator?
2: Well, it's true. Um, I, um, I I used to do a lot of music, of course, and p- playing in public. Um, but um, I did once do a gig as a stand-up comedian, uh, and it was, you know, it was it was doomed from the start because this was when I lived. Uh, in scotland and this was in a scottish working men's club they needed a comedian they'd got they got no uh you know the 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 regular gig had dropped out or something so they asked me and i said oh yeah i can do that now an english person put somebody with an english accent (laughs) in a scottish (laughs) working men's club um you could feel the waves of hate coming up you know it was (laughs) the hardest gig i've ever done Um, and what made it worse this was the, you know, the absolute death knell for the whole thing, was that in the interval they had a raffle and I won it. <laughs> <laughs> so, he's, hey, he's won the raffle as well. Get rid of him. We're going to have this guy. Oh, dear. So I've never aspired to uh, be a stand-up well, comic. You know, comedy's <laughs> lost
1: <laughs> is a of its game. Put it that way, Fred. <laughs>
2: Thank
0: you. Absolutely true.
2: Yeah. yeah. Uh, thank you, David. Thanks ever so much for those kind words. Um, and, and that's uh, you know, I was going to say I'm really glad we invited you on. Um, but we're we're glad because you bring a, a different you know a different slant on everything. And your evening show, I think, is one of the highest-rating uh, evening uh, shows, uh, so, certainly in the uh, listening area that you go to, which is all of Victoria, is that Yeah, right? that's right. No, mm-hmm. thank
1: you. That's kind of you. Uh, it's, um, we put a lot of uh, love and a lot of work into the to the show. Yeah. Um, but you're only as good as your guests, as you full well know, Andrew.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely true, <laughs> yes. And I think I told a couple of horror stories last week about – uh, guests that, went yeah, I, early that. Up, uh, I could relate. Live to air. <laughs> yes, yes indeed. David, um thank you so much for you know, doing a, a, a little segment for us on on Space Nuts episode so, 301. It's uh, It's been a lot of fun and, uh, you know, it's, it's good to occasionally get people to come in and, and sort of uh, quiz Fred and uh, get a different perspective on things and and learn things that uh, I wouldn't have thought to ask him either. So thanks again. It's really been good having
1: Pleasure. you. Pleasure. Thanks again for the invitation and, and congratulations. 301 is um, an auspicious number. Keep be many, many more to come.
0: Well, certainly more than 300. (laughs) Anyway, um, (laughs) Thanks, David. Good to have you here. Thanks. And you you are listening to, you too, listening to Space Nuts with Andrew Dunkley and Professor Fred Watson. Let's take a short break from the show to tell you about our sponsor, NordVPN. Now, as I've told you many times, I've been using NordVPN for quite a while now and I am genuinely impressed with their service, their speed, their reliability, and the simplicity of the the, the system. It's just uh, you can set it and forget it. It can turn on whenever you turn your computer or your device on, your, your uh, smartphone, your, your tablet, even your TV. Uh, you can have up to six devices uh, covered by NordVPN just by downloading the system. And as a Space Nuts listener, you get a, a special deal, which I'll tell you about shortly. Uh, one of the big advantages of a virtual private network is uh, it overcomes geoblocking. Now, geoblocking can happen for all sorts of reasons, and as a journalist, one of the things I find very frustrating is if I see a news story that I want to read and I click on the link, it'll often say, this story is not available in your geographic area, which really is annoying. I mean, why why is news not available to me just because I don't live in another country? It's still news. Um, mm. And it happens with TV shows as well and TV networks uh, and uh, services that exist all over the world. They, they geo-block people wanting to access those sites. Well, you can get around that as simply as having NordVPN. It uh, basically enables you to access TV shows in other countries, uh, certain news websites. Basically, you uh, can surf the internet without a border. And that's another good reason to get NordVPN because they are the best in the business. Now, we do have an exclusive deal. For Space Nuts listeners, so you can grab that by going to nordvpn.com spacenuts uh, Space Nuts, use the code Space Nuts, and you'll get a huge discount off your NordVPN plan, plus one additional month for free, plus a bonus uh, gift. And of course, it's completely risk-free with Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee. It's a simple process, just go to the website, it's a special URL, as I said, and grab the deal. Nordvpn.com/slash spacenuts. Use the code SpaceNuts. There's a huge discount off your NordVPN plan, plus one additional month for free, plus a bonus gift. Completely risk-free because Nord has a 30-day money-back guarantee. Grab the deal today. Now, back to the show. Three, two, one. This nuts! Now, a reminder, if you want to leave us a review, uh, you can do that on your podcast distributor, whoever you use. And there are many from Stitcher to Google Podcasts to iTunes to, uh, oh, gosh, I could, couldn't name them all. But uh, if you uh, would be so kind as to leave us a review, uh, it helps to spread the word and um, um, brings in more listeners to the podcast. The more the merrier. Uh, That's what I would say. So, uh, yes, uh, your reviews are most welcome. And we've had a couple recently, and thank you so much to those people who've been so very kind in giving us uh, five stars. That is fantastic. Really, really nice of you. Now, Fred, uh, let's talk about Neptune. It's a, a planet that sort of gets forgotten a lot of the time, uh, but it's one of the prettiest ones. Uh, I do love those shades of blue. Yeah. Um, yeah. But uh, there's something else about the planet. Um, in fact, the colour could be misleading uh, because we're going to talk about temperature. And <laughs> what they've noticed through the collation, if you like, of, um, of many years of, of studying the planet is that something weird is happening out there. <laughs>
2: That's right. Um, and yes, you, you're absolutely right. This is um, uh, astronomers uh, based actually mostly in Europe. Um, I think it's led by scientists from the University of Leicester in the UK. And um, this these scientists have uh, basically used many telescopes um, to put together a picture of the way Neptune's temperature has changed over the last 20 years or so. Uh, Actually, it's 17 years to be exact that they've been tracking the temperature. Um, How do you measure the temperature of a planet? Uh, Well, you use infrared um, measurements. Infrared radiation is effectively heat radiation. So uh, the infrared signature of uh, an object tells you about the amount of heat that it's giving which is telling you about its temperature
0: you you know Um, how they tell the temperature of uranus i don't want to go there (laughs) giant giant special thermometer
2: yes all right yeah i had a feeling that was what was
0: coming (laughs) anyway
2: <laughs> Talking, get back to Neptune, <laughs> the most distant, the most distant um, planet in the solar system. Um, yeah, it is possible to measure its temperature without a giant metal thermometer, <clears throat> and um, the way you do it is with infrared radiation. Now, uh, what what these scientists have done in a, I think, a very clever way, and you kind of use the right word. They've collated data. From many different large telescopes which have observed Neptune over the last 17 years. Uh, and they include the very large telescopes of the European Southern Observatory. I think that's been the primary, um, you know, the primary source of data. Uh, but they've also, I think, used the Keck telescopes uh, and maybe the Subaru telescope in, these are all telescopes, big telescopes in Hawaii. Um, the because the planet, of course, is observable from either hemisphere the northern or, or southern hemisphere. Yep. Um, the I was just looking for the list of what telescopes have used, but I can't pick it up. Never mind, uh, they've used uh, the, these these several um large instruments, these are all telescopes in the eight meter class, so they're not they're not small things that you look through. Uh, they are eight meter class telescopes equipped with state of the art. Thermal measurement equipment, in other words, infrared sensors.
0: Gosh, they uh, have used some the Gemini, uh, yeah, yeah, the VLT. VLT, yeah. You said the Keck, I did, and the Subaru, yes, yeah, yeah. a whole, whole bunch, yeah, oh, they, the Spitzer.
2: They, they... Okay, Spitzer is a is an infrared orbiting telescope. So yes, that it, it's great that they've uh, you know they've curated in a way all these different observations of Neptune, um, and yeah, the bottom line is it's an unexpected result because the uh, Neptune seems to be cooling or have a drop in the global temperature, but there seems to be an extraordinary warming at the south pole of Neptune now. A warming in the southern hemisphere of Neptune is what they expected, because the you know Neptune has, by the way, uh, a year of 165 of our years, so each season lasts around 40 years uh, rather than the the three months that our seasons last. It's the same reason that there's an inclination of the uh, of the of the planet's uh, axis to the uh, to, to the plane of its orbit. But uh, the um, the southern summer which is now approaching. I mean, I guess these observations have been made during the Neptunian southern springtime, where you expect it to be getting warmer, but actually it's got colder. Um, by significant amounts, The between 2003 and 2018, the period of these observations, the, the total global temperature of Neptune dropped by 8 degrees Celsius. Now, that's a huge amount. It sure is. Um, uh, but the South Pole... Has um, well, in in fact, it's, there's a more recent. This is more recent observations uh, between 2018 and 2020 um, that uh, the South Pole has risen in temperature by 11 degrees Celsius. Uh, there is there is a what's called a pole of v- vortex at Neptune's South Pole, and and that um, apparently is quite warm. Uh, and that's been something that's been observed for a long time. But nobody's ever seen this strikingly rapid warming that has occurred between 2018 and 2020 of 11 degrees Celsius. That's an enormous amount. Yeah. Uh, and so um, this is puzzling uh, the authors. And I mentioned most of them were in Europe. There is certainly a, um, another uh contributor glenn orton who's a research scientist at uh, the jet propulsion laboratory caltech Uh, so what they're trying to do now is theorize why this should have happened but at the moment i don't think there's an answer to it i think Mm. they are still trying to analyze the features of neptune's atmosphere that might explain these totally unexpected results
0: and it appears that they will be doing some analysis on Neptune using the James Webb Space Telescope, so it could reveal some secrets. Yeah. I, I wonder, though, Fred, uh, given how long uh, a Neptunian year is and how long the seasons are, that perhaps we just haven't got enough data to figure it out yet. It's that, it, Yeah. It's a short window for a very long year. I think that's absolutely right, Andrew. I'm sure that's,
2: you know, you you could, if you observed the Earth for a week, uh, which is kind of the same sort of fraction of the year that you observe, it's much much more actually than the fraction of the Neptune year that we've looked at, but you'd see fluctuations. But, you know, these are big, big changes in temperature. Um, It's, it may be it's right. Maybe, you know, these changes do go on all the time, but when, when we average them out over over um long periods, they just look like a, a gradual change. Mm. Uh Whatever it is, it's certainly uh, intrigued the astronomical community, particularly the planetary scientists.
0: Yes. Uh, well, hopefully they will be able to piece it all together and, and it might just be something that Neptune does normally, but the question yeah. is why? Why? Why does it do it? Yeah. Uh, but if you want to um, look into that uh, paper uh, from the University of Leicester, it's in the Planetary Science Journal. This is Space Nuts. You're with Andrew Dunkley and Professor Fred Watson. <laughs> Now, if you would like to become a patron and uh, chuck us a few bucks, maybe, you know, a quarter, (laughs) Uh, you can do that uh, via our website, all the information there about becoming a patron at spacenutspodcast.com or spacenuts.io. And just hit the support space nuts button and get all the information you need about becoming a patron. Whether you want to do that as a monthly contribution or as a one-off, or you just want to buy us a cup of coffee, all those and that's literally true. Uh, All those options are there uh, for people who want to become patrons. And a special shout out to our patrons who've signed up and stuck with us for a long, long time, or people who might have signed up in the last week or two. We really appreciate your support. So thank you. Okay, Fred. We got some questions, and the first one comes from I think it's Roberto. Hi, space
1: nuts. This is Roberto from Reggio Emilia, Italy. You are making an outstanding job. Great. I have a question. I am a forty-six year old guy, and I'm wondering. I'm expected to live. Um, 40 years more, and I would like to know if I will ever see a spacecraft heading to another star in my life, and if I will ever see the results of this visit to another star. Is there any project about it? Thank you.
0: Mm, uh, lovely to hear from you. We haven't had many questions from Italy, so uh, fantastic. Uh, I'll be in Italy next year. No, later this year, later this year. Yes, we've booked a a trip to Italy, Uh, so that'll be nice. Um, Yeah, uh, will we see within his... 40 years remaining, I was trying to be diplomatic, Um, a mission to another star and will we get data from it? I know they were talking about sending uh, mini-spaceships to uh, Alpha Centauri, um, but whether or not that sends back data remains to be seen. But that's still in the sort of let's talk about it phase, I think, isn't it? It is. uh, You're quite right, Andrew. Um, I'd I'd just... um, Perhaps offer,
2: Roberto, a few more years, though, because I think um, as time goes on, we're all living longer. Uh, Every decade, the average age goes up by something like – or the average lifespan goes up by something like three years. It's quite extraordinary, Mm. uh, the rate. Uh, That might slow down. I think a lot of that was – because people gave up smoking, which is, you know, perhaps one of the biggest factors. But I, I reckon Roberto, you might be able to look forward to another sixty years. Never mind forty years. There you are, and that, of course, broadens the window and makes it more likely that we will do that. And what Andrew has just mentioned is quite right. There was, there is um, a project which is still ongoing, funded privately by the Breakthrough Foundation. It's called Breakthrough Starshot, and it was designed to look at the feasibility of sending Of accelerating mini spacecraft, and these are tiny things. They're you know the size of a a packet of cards or smaller. Uh, uh, A mini spacecraft using uh, light sails. Uh, The idea is that you equip one of these tiny spacecraft with an enormous mylar sheet, a light sail, and uh, and then you build. Nine hundred and ninety nine more because they were talking about flotillas of about a thousand of them, and then you blast them with light from a very powerful laser uh, which gradually accelerates the spacecraft and even though the acceleration is is excruciatingly slow because you can do this over a long period of time, uh, you actually can uh, push them rapid uh, you know r- relatively quickly up to a speed that is a significant fraction of the speed of light. Uh, and they're talking about something like 20 to 30 percent of the speed of light. Now, if you head for Proxima Centauri, which is a member of the uh, Alpha Centauri system, uh, it's the nearest star to us other than the Sun. It's a red dwarf, uh, which we know has its own family of planets. Um, so that's 4.3 light years away. So, at you know, say 30 say, a third of the speed of light it's going to take you in the region of 13, 14 years, something mm. like that, to get there, um, neglecting the acceleration time. And then, um, uh, exactly as Roberto hints, there's the, there is the return time because uh, if you then take your photographs as you're whizzing past Proxima Centauri and its planets, uh, uh, they take, uh, you know, 4.3 years to come back at the speed of light. So you're talking about something in the region of 20 years uh, for the full mission, which is well within Roberto's time span. Uh, even if we don't do this for another 20 years or so, uh, I think it is still something that R- Roberto will live to see. Uh, and that's an extraordinary thought.
0: It is, yeah. Very exciting. I hope they do it. I really. um, Yeah, I I, think there's a good. I I think the problem is, though, we don't have any capacity to stop them when they get there, do we? No, they're just going to fling past. It's a a flyby, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Or a fly into, maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's right. (laughs) Mm. All right, Roberto, thanks uh, for your question. Lovely to hear from you. Let's uh, get closer to home for us, Fred, with Sandy from Melbourne. Hi, Professor Watson and Andrew. It's Sandy here from Melbourne again. My question today is about Meteor
1: CNEOS twenty fourteen oh one oh eight, which was recently confirmed by US Space Force to be our first detected interstellar visitor um, and incidentally predating the, the cow pattern, as Andrew calls it. Um, as I understand, this meteor entered Earth's atmosphere over the ocean and the authors of the 2019 study into the object talks about, although unlikely, the possibility of recovering a fragment of the meteor. Do you think it would be possible to recover such an object? Um, Once again, congratulations on the 300
0: episodes. Such a great show. Thank you so much. Thank you, Sandy. Lovely to hear from you. Um, Well, I suppose if they knew exactly where it uh, came down and where it settled and it was accessible, yes, they might be able to find a bit. But yeah, a needle in a haystack is probably an understatement.
2: <laughs> yeah, look, it's hard enough to find meteor fragments when they land in a desert that's got not n- nothing else to confuse it. But on the ocean floor is a different kettle of fish altogether. It's apparently um, the it's in the Pacific Ocean. Uh, it's off the coast of Manus Island is the is the place where this thing landed, and this this object. Um, I think it's been classified because it was the way it was detected by uh, probably defence-type uh, sensors, uh, but but it's recently been reported as being um, probably the first observed interstellar object because of its velocity, uh, around sixty kilometres per second, um, and it suggests that this would be something that has come. From another stellar system, maybe, uh, maybe from you know uh, a collision or something like that, or even the, the an explosion of a star or whatever. But this thing has come uh, out from from interstellar space, like Oumuamua and the uh, interplanetary comet, sorry, interstellar comet uh, Borisov. Um, but this thing burned up in the atmosphere, and we don't. First of all, we don't actually know whether any re- remnants of it did. Uh, reach the surface of the earth. Mm. Um, but the, uh, the one of the astronomers who actually reported the finding uh, has said that they're currently investigating whether a mission to the bottom of the Pacific Ocean in the hope of finding fragments of this f- 2014 meteor could be fruitful or even possible. My guess is that is a very long shot indeed. Indeed, um, I agree. But, uh, you know hope it re- remains eternal <laughs> you never know and that's the thing about these interstellar objects we've just got to be ready for them uh, to, to to find out more about them
0: yeah yeah so probably a long shot sandy but uh, never say never is never say probably never, the, the right attitude we said that about space nuts never say never <laughs> yeah, yeah. it might happen <laughs> It will never work. <laughs> it will never work. Uh, no. Uh, thanks, Andy. Good to hear from you. Um, maybe if you've got your togs and a uh, snorkel, <laughs> you could go and help them out. <laughs> the water will be a bit warmer than where you are, I can guarantee that. Yeah. Mm. All right. Um, and thanks to everyone who sent in questions. We've got a few uh, new ones, so we'll, we'll pick away at those over the next uh, few episodes. Uh, Fred, we're going to wrap it up there. Thank you so much, as always. Great pleasure,
2: Andrew. Always good. And what a special episode with David Astle there, Uh, sending us his curveball questions. That was great stuff.
0: Yes, nice to sort of launch into our next 100 episodes with um, someone else asking the questions. Uh, But next week I think we'll be back to normal. So um, look forward to your company then. Sounds great. See you soon. Okay, thanks, Fred. Fred Watson, astronomer at large. And from me, Andrew Dunkley, thanks for your company. Don't forget to send your questions via our... uh Website spacenutspodcast.com or spacenuts.io in text or audio form. Until then, take care, stay safe, and we'll catch you real soon on another episode of Space Nuts. Bye-bye.
1: Space Nuts. You'll be listening to the Space Nuts Podcast.
0: Available at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts,
1: Spotify, iHeartRadio, or your favourite podcast player. You can also stream on demand at Bites.com. This has been
2: another quality podcast cast
1: production from sites.com